Hey everybody, this is Rabbi David Foreman. I'm here back with Ami Silver. Ami, you there? I'm here. Hey everybody. Hey Rabbi Foreman. Hey Ami, it is good to be with you. It feels like I am right here with you and hopefully it sounds to our listeners that we have effectively created the illusion of you and I sitting in a fireside room in cozy armchairs and we have gathered back again to discuss uh, the continuing saga of Ami's look at uh, the the middle brachot of the Shemona Esrei. This is the fourth of our installments in this. And Ami, I'm just going to take a minute to catch us up, just actually just mm-hmm. a few seconds to catch us up. We've been looking at the middle brachot of the Shemona Esrei, and I have been playing a role here, Ami, that of your skeptical neighbor who doubts everything that you say. And Ami has sort of an emerging theory that um, these bakashot, these 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 asks that we are making of God, um, and he's shown this in the first couple brachot, are grounded in some sort of interesting way in biblical history, um, and he hasn't quite um, suggested to us what the meaning of that is, why it might be, what the what we're supposed to take out of this, but he's just sort of tantalizing, teased us with this mystery that there seem to be these sort of intertextual cues running through at least the first couple brachot, atachonin mm-hmm. dat, um, and then the later brachot, which have to do with hashivino avinu l'taratecha and slachlon avinu kichatanu, these three brachot seem to fit nicely with a kind of what-if game going back to the Garden of Eden. Um, what if Adam hadn't sinned? What if he had looked God, at God who was as not the um, king with the white long beard who was trying to keep us away from dot of knowledge, but was a chonin ladam dot, was gr- trying to grant us knowledge and that we were kind of messing up his ability to give it to us and how would history have looked at differently? And as skeptical neighbor, um, I was kind of playing along with that and suggesting that I'd gotten to a place where you had shown me enough that I think your theory is intriguing, even though I may not be sold. And I wanted to ask you to kind of sell me. What would you have to show me in order to really convince me? And and my answer as a skeptical neighbor is you have to show me more. If you're arguing mm-hmm. that uh, Shemona Esrei is um, founded in some way on these series of parallels that go back to these earlier biblical stories, and it starts with Eden, you kind of have to show me more uh, to establish your your evidence. And I would say that if you do succeed, Ami, in showing me more, you're kind of probably going to be doing two things at the same time. The first thing you're going to be doing is more consistent evidence as I go along that this is a thing, this is a pattern, Mm -hmm. that Chazal in crafting the language for this bracha were in fact relying on this earlier language from the Torah. So the first thing you're going to do is just show me evidence that that's true. The second thing you're going to do, I think, is help put into place the substructure, the infrastructure for a theory, for an interpretation of why Chazal would be doing this. Because the more evidence you see of what it is they're doing, the more you're in a position to interpret what the meaning is of what it is that they're doing. So as skeptical neighbor, Ami, I'm going to be asking you about both of those things going forward. So I kind of want to turn the microphone over to Ami. And what I'd love you to do, Ami, is to kind of see if you can take this theory going forward. We've seen the theory right now in the first three brachot of uh, of Shemona Esrei 
can you show me these sorts of biblical echoes in the fourth? Mm -hmm. Okay, so skeptical neighbor, I am. Uh, I'm happy to go forward, and and the question is, where do we go from here? And Just call me Skip. Think okay. Skip for sure. Skip Rabbi, Luckily enough, uh, the next place we go is the next bracha. I'll, I'll read it out, and maybe, maybe uh, Rabbi Skip, you can do a little uh, simple translation as we go. How would you translate that? Well, I would say, God, I'm asking you to see our suffering, see our uh, uh, see our sense of oppression, and mm -hmm. take up our cause. Riva rivenu, mm -hmm. a riv, literally would be an argument, argue our argument, or basically take our side in um, uh, some sort of battle which mm -hmm. we're involved in. Okay. Uge alenu shemecha, and redeem us quickly on account of your name, whatever that means, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. somehow God's name should propel God to want to redeem us. Ki goel chazakata. Because God, this is one thing we could say about you, is you're a pretty strong redeemer. Baruch atah Hashem goel Yisrael. Thank you, God, the redeemer of Israel. Um, okay. OK, so that's really what we're doing. And the, the plain meaning of this, Ami, is, you know, we're uh, I, I think this has a meaning both on the personal level and on the national level, uh, on the national level. Just keep in mind that this this bracha is phrased as uh, as as most of the brachas are. I think all of them are in the plural. We're grounding mm -hmm. our own experience and that of our nation. We're saying on the national level, hey, you know, we could use some help. And, you know, keep in mind that for uh, the, the, the great majority of the expanse of Jewish history, uh, we, we've been in exile. Now is one of the po points in our history where things are a little gray, but still, you know, the, we've not been completely redeemed. We've got the state of Israel, got this, got that, and trying to kind of make things work, sort of, in ways <clears throat> like going back to the eras of Ezra and Nehemiah and you know, you're coming back and pioneers coming and building the land and building it into what it can be. But at the national level, we're asking for God to take up our cause um, mm -hmm. and to uh, redeem us from whatever troubles we feel. On the personal level, um, anybody who feels down, anybody who feels hopeless, anybody who feels oppressed and crushed, we're asking to God and appealing to him and saying that you're a you're a strong redeemer and asking him uh, for help in whatever personal struggles uh, mm -hmm. we face. So that's kind of the overt meaning of the text. But you're going to argue that there that this is coming from somewhere biblically too. That Chazal mm -hmm. were picking up on something. Now they're not picking up on Eden, right? I don't see any of this language here reminding me of Eden. So, but you would argue that it does remind us of something, right? So, what, let me turn it to you. Right, what, so what case would you make here? So I want to start at the very opening words. And even if you, my neighbor, Skip, were not a rabbi and, and renowned scholar of Tanakh, you've at least been to a few um, Passover seders. And that so I, I want have. to ask. I got invited once to my friend uh, Blip's uh, Passover seder. Blip invited Skip. And I remember uh, kind of feeling a little woozy around the second cup or so, but the, this kind of language, mm. I don't know, it feels like 
somewhere through the haze, I heard this at the same time. So here's my question. Here's my question. We we start off, you know, granted, if I want to ask God to help me, there's so many ways for me to ask God to help me. But the way that we start off is literally see our oni, our suffering, our oppression. And where do we know that language? Where have we heard, you know, was there a time when God saw our oppression? I would say that um, there was. And I think you have what uh, I sometimes affectionately refer to in sort of advanced intertextual studies as a corner piece here. Sometimes when we make arguments that there's intertextual links between different sections of Tanakh or that the rabbis and Medrash are picking up something intertextually and are quoting from an earlier piece, usually they don't just quote one thing. Usually they're quoting a whole bunch of things at the same time. And the way to see it is kind of through a jigsaw puzzle methodology. And just like in jigsaw puzzles, you the first thing you do is you look for the corner pieces, then you look for the edge pieces, and then look for the middle pieces. That's kind of what you do over here. A corner piece is a piece that's very obvious, that just screams out to you, that here's where it belongs. It belongs at the corner. You don't have to know about where any other pieces are or even that there are any other pieces. The corner piece is instantly recognizable by its shape, and I know where mm-hmm. it goes in the puzzle. So too, Reina Vanyenu is a corner piece uh, in the sense that Re is a very common word and Oni is a fairly, not such a common word. It's a r- more rare word, uh, the word for suffering, but seeing them together is unusual and takes you straight to the Exodus. Where does it mm-hmm. take you? It takes you to Exodus 3. Um, so actually, I want to take you, Ami, uh, if you can, just open up your little Exodus 3 here. And if you're listening to this in the car or something like this, I wouldn't want you to um, get into an accident pulling over, uh, you know, pulling your Tanakh out as you drive. But you can just sort of listen. Um, and um, where this really comes from is the very moment that God, after hundreds of years of essentially uh, of slavery, where God seems to be silent in the world, all of a sudden God appears. And the first thing God appears, the uh, first thing God says when he appears is he kind of introduces himself. And this is at the burning bush. And the very first thing that God says when he introduces himself is this, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moshe hides his face, and then God says this. This is chapter 3, verse 7. Mm-hmm. And then, so what's clear here is the, here's that language in verse 7. Mm-hmm. I have seen, yes, seen the oppression, the plight of my people that is in Egypt and mm-hmm. their screams I've heard uh, because of their oppressors and I, I know their pain. Um, mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm going to go down and I'm going to uh, to save them uh, from its rhyme. And Ami, I would just ask you for a moment, you found this corner piece, and in a moment, I'm just going to ask you, um, and, and this is really, you know, what 
I think skeptical neighbor would ask anybody who found a corner piece, right? Imagine that you didn't yet know that there was a puzzle, right? Like, you know, you just found a jigsaw piece on the mm-hmm. floor and looked like mm-hmm. a corner piece. That would be subject- suggestive. But I would still want to know, like, are there any other pieces in this puzzle? Do you mm-hmm. see any middle pieces? Do you see any edge pieces? So I am still going to ask you on this, but, you know, you found something interesting. I just mm-hmm. want to, assuming you're right, go back into Exodus 3. Do you see, how would you structure what it is that God says? Take a look at Exodus 7, 8, and 9, and 10, sort of this first speech that God makes to Abraham, not sorry, to, to Moses, having started with the words ra'o ra'iti, right? Notice mm-hmm. the sense perception there, ra'o ra'iti, I have seen the, 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 the pain of my people. Notice that there's another sense that God references immediately after that. What's that? I've, I hear their their cries. Their yes. So first I've heard and then I've seen and then I've heard their cries. And then what verb follows that? I know their pain. I know their pain. Now, notice the couple verses later, right? You're going to get this again, right? Go now to verse nine. And what do you see again? And now the screams of Israel has come to me. What sense are we referring to there? There it's hearing. They're hearing. And now I've seen the the oppression that Mitzrayim is oppressing upon them. Now, Mm -hmm. what do you see here, Ami? What does this sort of remind you of? I have seeing, hearing, knowing, hearing, seeing. Mm -hmm. Chiasm. It's kind of a chiasm. If it's a chiasm, what's in the middle of the chiasm? Well, that would be the, the, the meat of it would be in the middle, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, the meat of it would be in the middle. So the middle, I want to suggest, is knowing together with the immediate corollary of knowing. The immediate corollary of knowing is, this is the end of verse 7 going into verse 8, immediately mm-hmm. after God says, I've seen your suffering, I've heard your cries, I know your pain, and therefore, verse 8, and therefore I'm going to go, go down to, to rescue them. I will yeah, act, right. even though mm-hmm. my normal place is up there in the heavens. This mm-hmm. is enough to compel me to come out of the heavens, va'ered lahatzilah mayan Mitzrayim, and to mm-hmm. come and take action in this world and to save them from Mitzrayim and to bring them out to my special place. So what I would say is that the middle of the chiasm, the the edges of the chiasm, are seeing and hearing, which, and on the other side, hearing and seeing, and the middle is knowing and doing. Now, what does mm-hmm. that suggest to you about knowing and the relation, its relationship between do, knowing and doing? Well, it suggests to me that the movement towards action somehow is an outgrowth of that those initial sense perceptions. Mm-hmm. The seeing, hearing leads to knowing and doing. Yeah, it, it's almost like there's this arrow that starts with seeing, that goes to hearing, that goes to knowing, that goes to doing. How do you describe that arrow? So why is seeing first? Why is hearing second? Why is knowing so, third? Uh-huh. Why so is here's, here's how I'm fourth? seeing it. I'm just thinking about how these different kind of sense perceptions work in us. I mean, here we're talking about God using these these sensory words for us. And, and of course, God know, is I, a person, right? So all this is metaphorical. God doesn't have right. eyes. He doesn't have ears. But there's something about the way this process works mm-hmm. for us that we're sort of metaphorically transposing for God. So how do we use our eyes? How do we use our ears? How do we use what's, what's knowing in relationship to all of that? Right. So my on a simple on a simple level, what I what I would say is to see something 
in a sense, is the first kind of level of noticing. Mm-hmm. I see something that is there in front of me that that I'm I'm looking towards. It's kind of happening out there, but I'm taking notice. Now, notice that word that uh, that Ami used. It's happening out there. And your seeing it doesn't change that, does it? It's still right. happening out there. The Ami's language was, I am taking notice. My eyes help me take notice of what's out there, but it's still out there. How does mm-hmm. that change as we get to our second sense, the sense of hearing? Right. So exactly that you you picked up on the on the, the words I was using very intentionally, because listening is something where I actually take something into my my own being in a different way. You know, exactly. even in a simple physiological level, the sound waves that emit from your voice are entering my ears and my body and reverberating within me. Something that is what it means pers- to, to hear. Yeah, something much more personal about hearing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and notice how much that even hearing has a sort of double entendre. If I say, I mm-hmm. hear you, right? Mm-hmm. What, what other thing does that mean other than physically listened? Right, it implies that I understand what you're saying and, and what you're, where you're coming from. Which is from. an internal process, right? Because there's something mm-hmm. very internal about hearing. With eyes, the way we perceive it is my nothing internally is happening. I'm simply taking notice of something that's happening out there. But when I hear something out there is coming inside me, and what would you say about knowing? So knowing, I mean, we've you know been talking about dot for quite a while here in these conversations. There's a There's a specific form of knowing that we see all the way back with Adam and Chava, which is about full union with, full coming together. Even if we want to extract Da'at to its more kind of cognitive level, I mean, to just look at those words, I God saying, because I know their pain. Mm-hmm. To say, I know your pain, means that on a very deep level, I empathize with your situation and maybe even identify with it to a degree. Exactly. So whereas seeing is completely external, I'm aware of something outside, hearing is a process of where something outside is coming inside me, knowing is it's inside me and I get it, right? Right. Even if it's not happening to me, I know what it's like right now. Right. So vicariously, something outside is now inside. And Mm -hmm. I get, right, I get it means there's something out there, but Hmm. magically I'm feeling it in here, right? Mm -hmm. Now, mm-hmm. if you really feel that, right, what happens when you get it, right? What's going to be the next thing? If you really, really identify with someone's pain and you feel it and it, it lights you on fire, what mm-hmm. what's going to happen next? Well, in the divine model, it seems like God has moved to act from that place. Right. And not just in the divine model. I think we're all moved to act. Now, sometimes we might be powerless, but if I'm powerful... Right. I will act if I have the mm-hmm. power to act. So that's the immediate va'erad latzila. So and now, mm-hmm. so it sounds like the center of the chiasm is actually knowing and acting. Mm-hmm. And in as much as that's the center, in other words, just to review, right? The edges are seeing, hearing, hearing, seeing, right? Mm-hmm. On the two edges, and then the middle is no act, right? Know mm-hmm. it and act. And the fact mm-hmm. that both of those are in the middle suggests to me that they're almost inseparable. Right, because there's mm-hmm. they're one thing, right? Mm-hmm. The the chiasm mm-hmm. is A B C, A B C B A, right? Mm-hmm. Where C is a two part C, but it's still C, which is know and act, which means that real empathy, when I come to understand something, is such is such a powerful force that it almost inexorably leads to action. Once God allows Himself to be moved 
by what's going on. Even that English word moved, right? Isn't, mm-hmm. it, isn't that an interesting mm-hmm. word? That is really which interesting. Is the word we use if I feel it deeply, so I'm already going somewhere. I'm already, act, right. Like that itself yeah. is action. It's acted yeah. upon me, so I can't help but act. I can't, mm-hmm. moved means I am not the same. I am acted upon by this mm-hmm. feeling, and therefore mm-hmm. I will act. And that's kind of at the center of this chiasm. So the words that you've picked up here are fascinating words. Ra'oraiti, I've seen the pain of my people, because this is the beginning of God's expression of empathy, and empathy which is going to express itself as it becomes deeper and deeper in knowing and action. Now go back, mm-hmm. Ami, to the bracha which you've been talking about. Do you see any of this resonating in the bracha that you've picked up on on this corner piece that begins with before I jump in there, I also just want to say to our listeners and to you, Rabbi Foreman, you've done a lot of work in the story of, of the Exodus showing that God's empathy and message of empathy towards the children of Israel was, was at the center of a lot of the plagues and the signs and, and things like that. So I just want to refer our viewers or listeners to look at some of those earlier courses to see this theme really fleshed out in a fuller way. That's, that's going to be the three great lies of the Exodus. It's going to be the, the video which we talked about, the burning bush and the Ten Commandments. But go ahead. So, so if we come back to the bracha itself, right, are we seeing any more resonances, any edge pieces right. which take us back to the Egypt experience? Right. So there we go. Re'evanyenu, we open up with those, you know, God's own first words, if I see their suffering. Veriva rivenu is, and fight our fight, which is very much in line with the things that, that we're looking at here in the burning bush. If, when God really sees our pain, and then moves into empathy. So the natural next step is God is going to do something on our behalf. I would even read Riva Rivenu in, in, in this context, see our pain and make our fight your fight, which, which is what God, which is what God did for, for us back Go in back Egypt. Go back and read the passage that Reina Vanyenu is referring to in the Torah, notably Exodus 3, the whole point of that passage is that something was happening to us that God identified with, mm-hmm. right? And in as much as he identified with it, what Ami you're pointing out is Riva Rivenu, that double words of language doesn't just mean fight our fight. It can have that sense that that our fight is your fight, right? Then mm-hmm. that there's that sense of empathy there too, that you feel connected to us and so connected that you want to move. It's as if it's happening to you. I mean, God so, wasn't doing us a favor in the Exodus. God was jumping into to join us there. I mean, even look at this like God's saying, I'm gonna go down there. I'm not right. just gonna, you know, yeah. throw throw thunderbolts from the from, right. from it's the become pers- as it's if it's personal. become personal exactly. for God. Right. Exactly. What about Ga'alenu? The next so, word. So obviously, yeah, go ahead. Right. So obviously, if you ask uh, somebody what the word Ge'ula and Ga'alenu in, in five books of Moses is referring to, it it thematically links us to the Exodus. But I want to show that it's even more than thematically. It textually links us to the story of the Exodus. Um, mm-hmm. This is is already a few chapters later than the burning bush, but at the very early stages of the Exodus story, you know, after the first time Moses comes to comes to Egypt and he and, and Aaron go and they try to convince Paro and Paro gets upset at them and etc. The the Bnei Israel are suffering even more, and Moshe turns to God and says, "God, what's going on? Things are getting worse." 
And God reassures me. And by Moshe. the way, just just in terms of things are getting worse, it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because think back to Re'eva Anyenu, right? And what God says in Shemot 3. But God says in Shemot 3, you know, if you're Moses and you stumble upon a burning bush and you hear the words, Ami, Ami, you know, coming to you from the burning uh, bush on the corner of a Karen Kayemet and Agna, Agron or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, you stop and then and, and says, Ami, I want you to go and you're going to save these people in trouble. So you think, oh, wow, I feel so touched. The Lord himself is speaking to me. You're on a high, right? Uh-huh. But notice that Moshe was on a high in Shemot 3. By the time you get to Shemot 6, he ain't on a high anymore, right? His first approach to Pharaoh has gone devastatingly wrong. Pharaoh has rejected every single moment. The people are mad at him. The people are complaining to him and saying that the whole thing is your fault. You've given a sword to Pharaoh to kill us. Moshe is despondent. Moshe comes to God and starts screaming to God. And it's interesting when Moshe screams to God, Mm -hmm. it sounds to me resonant with Shemot 3. What did God hear? I saw your pain Mm -hmm. at Sakatam Shamati. I heard your screams. screams. It's like Moses is now in the position of the people. Now he's screaming too. And what essentially is God is saying, relax. The same kind of empathy I said I'd have with the people I have with you. I understand how painful Mm -hmm. this is that things aren't working out, right? Don't worry, it's going to be fine. And that is Shemot 6. When he says, don't worry, it's going to be fine, he says, hey, you know, I, I see what's going on with you. I see what's going on in the people now. Now you perfectly identify with the people. You're, you're no longer a prince in Midian, riding high, avoiding everything. You're back with the people. You're also not a knight in shining armor, right? You're not a knight in shining armor. No, it's not going to be the simple. Armor. You have the yeah. same sense of degradation that they do now. Now I can help you both. And he comes back and reiterates this and said, everything is going to be okay. I've heard the pain. I remember what's going on. And then Shemot 6, and I think you're quoting now from verses 5 and 6, God says, I'm going to take them out of Egypt. I'm going to save them. I'm going to, to redeem them with an outstretched arm. Now, by the way, with the outstretched arm, I was actually happens to be something I was thinking about over the last couple of days, Ami. It always struck me as funny that, that there's this language of God says, I can redeem them with this outstretched arm. Like, why is God using that metaphor of an outstretched arm so much? And it struck me as kind of interesting because in the Exodus story, can you think of any other outstretched arms other than God? What is an outstretched arm? An arm starts like this, but then it gets outstretched when it uncoils itself, right? Mm. What is that motion, right? Mm. That's actually a striking motion when you Mm -hmm. have your hand coiled up and then you stretch it out, which interestingly is the language that God tells Moses to do with the staff all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. right? Stretch, stretch out, your, out hand. your hand. Now, was there a time that Moses ever had to do that, that striking motion in order to save? When did he hit in order to save? Oh, back at the bush, right? When, when, when he's asking, he's asking God, God's trying to give him some signs that are going to work there. Is that not? Oh, I mean, we go all the way back when Moshe is, when Moshe is first in Egypt. Yeah, and yes. he sees the Egyptian striking That's the right. Israelite slave. Exactly. Vayach Moshe Mitzri. That's when it happens. Moshe actually does that. He stri- He sees a Jew right being being harassed, being being 
killed by this uh, by this Egyptian taskmaster, and he's a prince of Egypt, and he gets involved, right? Mm-hmm. He's king, and he gets involved, and he actually strikes. And then God says, ah, okay, this is somebody, I can work with this guy. We can use that right? hand for, for more. We can use that hand. <laughs> Here's a king who stands mm-hmm. up for the oppressed and strikes. I'm a king. Mm-hmm. I stand up for the mm-hmm. oppressed. I'm going to use him. He's going to be my body man on earth. My issue is like, I don't have a body, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a God, but I can amplify his body. Mm-hmm. So his Yad becomes the Yad HaChazaka, right? So in other words, mm-hmm. I'll turn your Yad into an ultimate Yad, a Yad HaGdola, a Yad HaChazaka. And I'm going to save, right, Bizroa Nituya with an outstretched arm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, at Yamsuf, what is at the Sea of Reeds? What does God tell Moshe to do? That same motion, right? Now you're going to use it to wipe out a whole army of oppressors, and they won't bother anybody anymore because you're doing it in my agency. So this mm-hmm. is God magnifying the power of humans trying to do the right thing, in this case Moshe, and giving him the power to do far more than he ever could imagine, taking that outstretched hand of Moshe and making it the ultimate outstretched hand. So, so I do, I do want to point out, and, and I'm going to want us to to come back into the bracha in a moment. But, but Moshe already, if you're referencing his first strike that he made, the first thing he does is he walks out vayar besiflotam. He walks out to his brothers and he sees their yes. suffering. Isn't that interesting? He's starting that with Moshe, that same sense perception of God, excellent. moved to empathy, moved to passionate involvement. Excellent point. So, in essence, what God is really doing is mirroring Moshe's own journey. Moshe is the king, the prince in the palace, the prince of Egypt, who decides to not just stay up in the palace, but to identify, Mm. to see what's going on with his brothers, to identify with them, and then to act with Bizro and Natuya for their actions. Moshe did it when Vayar Besivlotam, when he saw their their suffering. God does it when Vayar et Onyenu. Mm-hmm. Right when when he's when he sees the pain of our people and he acts. So Ami, you and I were actually talking about before this podcast. You showed me something really interesting. How this language in Shemot three actually comes back forty years later in the book of Deuteronomy in Devarim twenty six. Right, because uh, what what Ami showed me, which is just fantastic, folks, I think, is that here you have basically, if we go back to our language in the bracha, right? God sees, you're the one who sees pain, and you act, right, to redeem us. Your fight becomes our fight, and you act. That seems to be based on Shemot 3, mm-hmm. where God says, I've seen your pain, right? And I'm going to act. And then he says, right? I know. I will not be able to redeem them without a strong hand. So this is already, Rabbi Foreman, you're reading reading ahead later in the discussion at the burning bush. Just yes. keep our listeners up up, up to yes. pace here. If you keep on in that this, conversation, this you know, Moshe and God go back and forth. That's yeah. Verse 19. Now, Yad Chazaka is going to, again be referenced in our bracha. I mean, mm-hmm. this is another one of your middle pieces, mm-hmm. right? Because not only is there a re'eva anyenu, which takes us back to the Exodus, not only is there a go'alenu, which takes us back to the Exodus, not only is there implicitly a riva rivenu of God making his fight our fight, which is the whole theme of, of Exodus 3, but the very next words are ki go'el chazak ata, right? We refer to God as 
not just the goel, the goel mm. chazak. Right. Of course, chazak is a word which also comes straight out of Shemot 3, where God says, I, I've seen the pain of my people, and I know that unless there's a strong hand, they will not be taken out. The way I've mm-hmm. just sort of put that is, mm-hmm. unless I magnify your hand, nothing's going to happen, right? And that's in Shemot 3.19, when he says, I know, ki lo lo chazaka, that they won't, that, that we're not going to get anywhere unless it's with a strong hand. And then, in fact, that's the way it is. Because 40 years later, when we come back to memorialize what's happening in words that we say, that we come the template for the Seder itself, mm-hmm. right? And these are the words that are, are the basis for the Seder, right? You have Dvarm 26. And Ami, where do you have these words coming right, right back? So, so interestingly enough, it's actually the form of how already in the Torah, we're retelling that story. Listeners, take a look here. We called out, cried out to, to the God of our ancestors. God heard our voices. There we go. There and God is. saw our impoverishment, our suffering, our amal, our lachats, all of the words of pain and, and oppression. Now verse verse 8, As we saw, God has moved to act. God took us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now there we have it in our bracha, I also just want to want to point out um, that if you go back into, you know, the end of the the actual exodus um it comes up already in the in the plague of the firstborn and then in the ensuing verses after the plague of the firstborn we start to see the language of of chozek yad appear um we see first this is something Rabbi Foreman, you and i looked at in a different context that vatechezak mitzrayim al israel they are chozek they're strongly pushing b'nei israel to urging them to leave and then in the in the well, 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 one second, one second. I actually want to stop you right there. Yeah. Ami, the verse is 1233. Can you read it for our listeners? Yeah, so so here we are. This is when in the middle of the night, God's striking the firstborn of Egypt. Paro gets up and says, get out of here. Get these people out of here. Verse uh, 33. Egypt is chazak. They are um, strongly urging the nation to hurry and to be to send them out of the land. Now, uh, one second, really um, interesting. I totally see that word hurrying. So, there. Oh, so, listeners, where is it? Listeners, I want you to know this is part of why we do these because this is spontaneous findings that here we are in the in the laboratory looking back into the text and it's showing us more and more. Because in this bracha, mehera make this redemption happen quickly. Wasn't only that we left in haste, but this word maher, we were actually rushed out by the Egyptians. And what in what way were we rushed out? With with chozek, with strength, That's with right. power. They were pressing us because to leave. He, so how were you a goel chazak? You were a goel chazak in as much as you engineered a process which forced the mitz, the mitzrim themselves to expel us with power. With right? power and with rushing. With power and with rushing. But techazak mitzrayim alam, you're a goel chazak, lemaher l'shalcham, therefore goalenu mehera l'man shmecha. Now, Ami, if everything else in this blessing refers to the Exodus, the one words which don't so far is lemaan shmecha, okay. for your namesake. Mm-hmm. What would for your namesake remind you of in the context of the Exodus? Where is this notion that on account of God's name, 
God is going to save us. What name would that be? And where does God reveal that? Ah, very interesting. So I was, I'll, I'll, I'll say my first thought was Laman Shmecha for the sake of your name is that we see throughout the Exodus um, that God is showing all these plagues in order for God to be known to the world, to known to Egypt, like that, that I am the one God. So that was what was first on my mind. But when you, when you pointed a little more at the name itself, that goes back to the bush as well, right? Moshe saying, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to come to these people. They're going to ask me, Mashmo, what is, what is the name of this God? What should I say And, and by the way, just, just to stop, right? The, the, all of this language starts at the bush, mm-hmm. right? These, mm-hmm. This language Re-Evan. of Re'evan Yenu comes from God's introduction of himself. I am the seer of your pain. But what's fascinating at the bush is that that idea of God being the God of empathy that sees and mm-hmm. hears and acts ultimately gets distilled into a name. Because at that moment, after God introduces that way, I am the God of empathy, Moshe comes back and says, okay, but what's your name? Mm -hmm. The people are going to ask me for your name. I have no idea what to tell them. Mm -hmm. God comes along and says something mysterious. Eh, yeah, sure, eh, yeah. I'll be that which I will be. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is that Chazal, in interpreting I will be that which I will be, have a fascinating interpretation. They don't understand I will be as I will be. It's talking about existence, stam. I will be. They understand in the it's sense that I will statement. be with. Yeah. It's not an existential statement. It's a spiritual statement. Mm-hmm. I will be with is how they understand it. I will be with you in your times of sorrow. The same why double, I will be that which I will be. Mm-hmm. The way Chazal put it, the same God who is with you now in your pain, mm-hmm. that, that, you, that has perceived your pain through seeing and hearing and feeling, that same God is going to see, hear, and feel your pain for all time in the future. Now, this notion of for all time in the future, like where are Chazal getting that from? How do they know Eliyash or Eliyah is like now and for the future? The answer is because the next thing God does is God says, I'll make a name out of that. Because in mm-hmm. essence, he's really saying like, I don't have a name. I'll be what I will mm-hmm. be. But then God says, you know what? You need a name. All right, we can come up with a name. I can make that into like a word. I will be that which I will be. I will be has to do with existence. Existence in past, present, and future. Existence always would be what name? Would be Haya, Hove, and Yehiyah all rolled into one, which is Yud and He and Vav and He. So God says, sure, just call me Yud and He and Vav and He. Mm-hmm. It's a nonsense word that just means is, was, and will be always, mm-hmm. always with you. That's mm-hmm. the soul of empathy. Mm-hmm. So God is saying, I am the empathy God. So it's really true, as the bracha says, Re'ena Vanyenu, see our pain, take up our cause, Riva Rivenu, because that's what empathy always is, when you see from the outside, but then you internalize it and you act. Ugo Alenu, and therefore redeem us. Mehera, do it quickly, Kigoel Chazakata, like you did back then. Why would you do all of that? Why should you do all of that? Lema'an Shmecha. Because who are you? You are the empathy God, Mm -hmm. right? You are the God of being there with, right? And being there with isn't just a matter of feelings, Mm -hmm. it also is inextricably tied to action, right? So if you really feel what we're going through, you're going to act. That is what your name is about. Which is what we, we at the Chatima, Baruch Atah Hashem Goel Yisrael, takes on a, a deeper meaning now that we see all this. It's not just blessed are you, God, 
who's the Redeemer of Israel, uh, because once you did that, or because we know that you promised to do that. But what God is communicating at the bush and through the Exodus is, this is part and parcel of my identity. My identity is the caring, compassionate Redeemer who is always with you and will be with you. So when we when we close Goel Yisrael, we're exact. I think it's where you're going. We're saying in the present tense, we know exactly. that this is who you are, God. And in this very moment, in whatever ways that we individually, collectively, um, universally, as a as a what, however broad you want to make this blessing, we are appealing to what we know to be true about you to act on our behalf right now. Exactly. So, I mean, I want to close our session here with just coming back to me as skeptical neighbor, right? So here I am. I'm your skeptical neighbor. You're telling me your vart. And now I'm kind of impressed, right? Like in the beginning, it was like, okay, that's sort of intriguing. And then maybe, and then I kind of see where maybe you're going here. And now I think you're onto something. You have a string of intertextual parallels that are quite powerful that take us through one, two, three, four blessings. I'm going to want to see them go further. I'm Mm -hmm. going to want to see them in the fifth, sixth, and seventh blessing. But at this point, I think you're probably onto something, right? Mm -hmm. You've got something here. It's really rather intriguing. I want to now come and ask you to speculate with me and close out the section on the meaning of what you said. Mm -hmm. And the first bridge to understanding meaning is just to kind of say, and I'm just going to play skeptical neighbor again with you, which is, okay, Ami, I see where you're going here. I see you got this stuff. Fourth blessings all about Egypt. But that wasn't what the first blessings were about. The first blessings were about leaving the garden, mm-hmm. right? And, and and the garden. So is there any common denominator here, you know, between these situations? Um, and, and is there a larger theory? What what theory are you really building here? Why now, I want to ask. You, you've satisfied my what. I, I see what you're doing, I think. See the beginning of what you're doing. Why is is our Chazal doing this? Mm. What do they hope to do by making these intertextual parallels? Is there a connect the dots here? So that is the million dollar question, right? Because it's a it's a bit odd. Like if we're picking up on some kind of subterranean storyline here, that we're first in these Gan Eden references, these Garden of Eden references, and then we all of a sudden are in Egypt land. Well. What happened in between? <laughs> How did we get from one to the next? Now, one thing I can begin to speculate here or is, is actually just kind of thinking out loud here. What do the Egypt story and the Gun Aden story have in common? Well, something that comes to mind is leaving places mm. uh, or exile. Uh, on some level, our very first exile was an exile from the garden mm. uh, or other uh, our next exile is an exile into Egypt. To some extent, I mean, they're inverses of each other because interestingly, there, there's an interesting verse in Genesis when um, when Lot decides to go to Stone. Yeah, I was um, thinking about this also. Right? Isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah. That the Torah describes Stone. And how does it describe Stone in a way that sorts to tickles your fancy in terms of touching on an interesting common denominator between sort of these first blessings that reference the garden and these next blessings that reference Egypt. Right. If I remember correctly, that looks upon Stoma and he says that it's green like Gan Eden, like Eretz Mitzrayim. Right? Exactly. Kigan Eden Keretz Mitzrayim. Is that not the language? Right. Kigan Hashem Keretz Mitzrayim. Kigan Hashem right. Keretz Mitzrayim. It was like the Garden of God, like the land of Egypt. So it sounds like there's an interesting fundamental common denominator in Egypt 
and the Garden of God. Now, the simplest way to interpret that is just on the basic socio-agricultural level, mm -hmm. which is that lush. if you have a parched desert and you all of a sudden have a lush area in a desert, so the desert climate, right, the, the beautiful heat, and right, is, is great for... Um, for plants, but they're missing water and you don't get water in a desert, but where do you get the water from? The answer is if you have a river running through it, mm. right? So any areas where there's a natural river, and especially if the river overflows, so you're going to have sort of a garden, you're going to have a paradise-like garden in that area. So that was Eden. Of course, we have the four rivers of Eden mm. that come out of Eden, right? And that was Egypt, which of course is the Nile, the world's longest river, Right and uh, 93 billion gallons reportedly flow through the through, uh, fresh water flow, flow through the Nile Delta every single day, and it overflows its banks, inundating the surrounding areas, really making the whole area lush and fertile, which made ancient Egypt the breadbasket of the uh, of the ancient world. So on some level, there's which a strangely enough is how the Exodus in Egypt began with Joseph and his brothers ending up there because that's where the food was. But that's and for that's for another <laughs> another time. Well, and also think about the curse of Eden. Mm -hmm. If Egypt was the breadbasket of the ancient world, what was the curse of Eden mm -hmm. that that resonates with? The curse God of Eden is going to be when you're outside of this land, you're going to work the land and it's not going to be so uh, so helpful Lechem, Lechem, which is what we went to right? Egypt. So By the cool. sweat of your brow, you'll eat your bread. And of course, where's the great place where bread is abundant, right? It's it's Egypt, the bread, literally the breadbasket of the ancient world. So in a way, what you have is these interesting inverses between Eden and Egypt. And I think this gets to this point also of Dat, um, the subterranean theme of Dat, which is uh, these are almost mirror images of each other. We were cast out of Eden because of this illegitimate, because we illegitimately played with these notions of good and evil and right and mm. wrong to this point where we thought we could become the arbiters of right and wrong. And at some point when you're cast out of Eden and you live in a world where might makes right and where anybody can come and say, I am the one who gets to determine right and wrong, you could end up on the short end of the stick. It's great if you have all the power and you get to determine what's right and wrong. But what if somebody else gets to determine it? What do you end up becoming? Hmm. You end up becoming their slave if their you're not slave. if you're not in power, right? which is exactly what happened to us in Egypt. So having experienced the this playing with fire of good and evil, hmm. we get Pharaoh who plays with the same fire. Having experienced being thrown out of the Garden of God, which is just like Egypt, we have an exile that ultimately brings us into another kind of garden that's apocalyptic in which we are enslaved, having experienced being thrown out of the garden where by the sweat of our brow we eat bread, we learn what it's really like mm. to eat bread by the sweat of your brow when there's a king that makes their own definition of good and evil and thinks it would be really great to have you as their slaves and there is no right and wrong and challenges God's ability to legislate against him and says, Mi Hashem Asher Eshma Bakolo, which is just the Garden of Eden taken to its nth, the, the sin of the tree of knowledge taking it to its nth degree. Mm -hmm. Why should I listen to you? Adam mm -hmm. and Eve heard the voice of God in the garden and they hid, 
right? And Pharaoh hears the voice of God in the garden and he hides and says, Mi Hashem, Asher Eshma B'Kolo, who is God that I should listen to his voice? I maintain my own ability to decide right and wrong. I don't need him. And this is where the chickens have come home to roost, so to speak, in terms of the sin of the of the Garden of Eden. So there are these sort of, you know, at the simplest level, there are two exile stories. Mm-hmm. At the deeper level, there's other kinds of connections. And, mm-hmm. and even... I mean, I think, you know, to, to really tie what we've been talking about in a bow, if you get back to this empathy, God is doing something beautiful and redemptive here. Because what is the soul of this empathy? Look at the center of the chiasm. When God uses his understanding of morality, mm. an empathetic understanding of morality, beautifully and caringly to help us, what was the center? What did he y- say? Yadati et machovav. Exactly. I'm using my dot to empathize with you and care for you and then do what's in your best interest. Exactly. The chonein la'adam dot. This is the dot that God wanted to give us. That sense of empathy, that sense of care, his way of looking at good and evil. And God comes back into this world where we are raw and brutalized and pained, right? Because we've got the short end of the stick of somebody who has his own definition of good and evil, his own dot, and doesn't need God's. And God says, you know, this is the moment for my dot. Mm. This is the moment to come to know. This is what I want to teach you. This is the Torah that I want you to understand, right? This is, this is these are my values. Mm-hmm. Look at what I'm doing now. And I see it in Moshe, and I want to amplify. He had those values of empathy and, and action. I want to amplify those, and I, I want you all to, to learn from that. Which, which to, to bring it into our context, and you know, a lot of our listeners in, our, in the comment boards have, have mentioned their questions, you know, how do these findings impact or relate to our very real experience of here I am as a person in 2020 praying to God and saying these words? Right. So here we are in whatever state of oppression we may be experiencing, be it physical, mental, emotional, be it about a friend or a loved one. And here we are turning to that very same God who said, and who, in a sense, proved that this is the way that God relates to this world and that we can appeal to that very same relationship. What an empowering frame and mode of addressing God this is for us to really say these words from our own current position. Yep. And what it is, and I think this is the essence of your theory, if I understand you correctly, getting, if I'm skeptical neighbor, getting back to your theory, what your theory really is, is that there's two levels of meaning here in all of these blessings and they interplay off of one another and they strengthen each other. One level is personal, whether uh, in present tense and the other is uh, is in the past tense. The other is historical. Well, it's and kind of, I would say, is, narrative. The other is, is a kind of broad narrative. It's, is it in the it's past a broad tense? narrative yeah. in his past tense, narrative historical. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is we're grounding our personal experience in history and in our, in our Torah, in our narrative. So we're firmly planted on the ground. So yes, the, the plain meaning of the blessings are all about us right here and right now and our needs we need wisdom we feel like we need understanding we feel like we need contrition we need to be accepted and we and these are the things we want most from god could you accept us if we turned around could you give us the knowledge and that we need and the, the wisdom that we need to make it through life 
could you see our pain and our suffering and be there for us? And what we do is we ground ourselves with these moments in our history and refer to those as we ask those pleas. And we say, you know, we're not turning to just anybody when we say we'd like you to be empathetic with us. Could Do you think you could hear what, what we're going, see what we're going through? Do you think mm-hmm. you could make your cause our cause? We've seen that in our own national historical experience we're appealing to that we've seen being redeemed quickly that things can turn around in unexpected ways we've seen it we've seen your name you've revealed us who your name is these are your values we've seen you as somebody who wants to give wisdom to us and therefore if we feel like like that that we don't know what's going on in our dreams and our nightmares. We worry that maybe we're not supposed to know what's going on mm-hmm. and that maybe there's a God in the world that that thinks that we're dumb or wants to hide knowledge from us, but we're willing to see you differently from that. Mm-hmm. You, We're willing to see in that story that you were a chonein l'adam dat, and because of that, we we have reason to think that you could forgive us, that we have reason to think that we could turn towards you and have you accept us. So we're grounding our prayer in reality. We're not just praying to the wind. We're not just making up stuff and wishing that maybe there was somebody there who could listen. We're grounding our our experience in moments of hope from the past Mm -hmm. that give us hope. And what do you want more when you feel beaten down, when you feel like you need so many things and somebody comes to you and says, what hope do you have? You're praying? Who are you praying for? He can't see you, can't hear his invisible God. We're saying, no, there is hope to be found in our history. Um, And it's a hope that's grounded in rationality. uh, It's grounded in real experience. To me, that's what your theory means to me, Mm -hmm. that there's this overt meaning of the text, which is I'm here, I'm an individual right here, right now, this is what I'm feeling. And there's this covert meaning of the text, which is, and I have reason to hope grounded in the past, in the darkest moments of my history, when I was kicked out of Eden, when I found myself in Egypt, there were reasons to hope. And I am referencing those in my prayers. Right. And, um, and you know, so for listeners, we're going to wrap up here, but we're only a couple brachas into the requests section. And um, Rabbi Foreman, these ideas that we're beginning to tease out, we're going to see how they continue to increase and expand and intensify as the, the next brachot continue. Something else that, that we'll share along the way is that it does seem like the rabbis are using these moments, these touchstones of, of exile and redemption of, you know, a kind of basis for hope as the template for us to pray in. And part of what I want to argue and what I think we'll flesh out in, in subsequent um, meetings is that the rabbis actually have a precedent for doing this themselves. That's right. And, and I think that's really exciting. So just to tease you for next week, it wasn't just the rabbis coming out of nowhere that they came up with this formula of harking back to our past in order to give us hope. They saw that as a theme in Jewish tradition that they were amplifying. And uh, we'll come back next time and really show where that theme comes from, how deep a, a thread that is within our within biblical text, within our tradition. The finding of hope in the present in these moments of the past, which is the, the essential basis of all of our prayers. So, Ami, it's very exciting, and I, I'm looking forward to, to hearing more. We didn't get a, a chance to talk. Uh, our discussion was informed by questions and things like that which saw on the boards there's a 
um, we didn't get to mention people by name, but your your comments have uh, have stirred us and continue to do so. So please keep them coming. If we get a chance next week, Ami, we should get back to some of the questions we saw, which we didn't get to, some of the questions, thoughts, and observations, which people wrote in the comments, which we didn't get a chance to talk to this time, uh, but we're continuing to enjoy them. So please keep those coming. They continue to fascinate me, and I'm sure they fascinate Ami as well. We read so them we'll all and discuss week. them together beforehand. Yeah, that's right. We'll see you again in session five next week. Thanks. Take care.